Today's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the, eter into the eternal dwelling. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Thank you. The Gospel of the Lord. Thank you, Jacqueline. Um, a brief prayer real quick before we get going, and then I'll dive in and, and do the best that I can to this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this immense privilege it is to come under the teaching of, of your holy scripture, to come under the teachings of Jesus himself. Um, this is a hard parable. This is a hard teaching. I just pray, Lord, that more than anything else, that in this message this morning, that you may be seen, that you may be heard, Pray, Lord, for pride, that it may be crushed with this message, uh, and that pride includes my own. I just pray, Lord, that you grant us ears to listen, hearts to love, eyes to see, and minds to understand. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As Bill said, this is my first time actually presenting a sermon on a Sunday morning. Sean McCurtis did uh, faithfully entrust me for his first come together concert to, to give the message uh, but like I was telling Bill that was amongst a lot of people that I didn't know uh, it's a lot easier to speak in front of people you don't know uh, it's a little bit more difficult to, to preach in front of people that you do know especially uh, a lot of you that have seen me come to faith uh, right here in this very church uh, 16 years ago so it is an honor and a privilege to be before you this morning uh, and first off I just want to start off by saying good morning and happy new year Obviously, today is the first day of the new year, and for those of you that are visiting, my name is Jerry Calendrilla, and I am not the senior pastor here, uh, and most likely by the end of this message, you'll understand why I'm not. Um, Jared Von Camp is our senior pastor. For those of you that are visiting that might be able to come back next week, I, I encourage you to come back, as Richard often does when he preaches, to, to come back and, and actually fall under the teaching of Jared Von Camp. We are very blessed at Christ First Church 
to have such a wonderful senior minister in Jared Von Camp, uh, but he is traveling today. Um, he was gracious enough to answer the phone this morning because we had to get a hold of him for sound issues, so uh, I do feel for Jared now because I know what it's like to have to deal with AV and everything else as well. Um, but I am one of the elders here at the church, and I am blessed to, to do so, and I do want to thank the elders for entrusting me to actually give this message today. Ironically enough, when I uh, went through the elder process, uh, the first thing that I think I told the elder team was, uh, I will do anything except for preach. Um, so here we are. Uh, Richard did give me permission, though, to use his standard New Year's line, and that is to actually come forth with a New Year's resolution. And Richard, for all of you that have been with us for a long time, know that Richard's New Year's resolution every year is to not make resolutions. Well, Jason, our, our now second youngest son, went to Richard, I believe, last year and said, well, Richard, technically you're making a resolution. So with that being said, I'm going to take this opportunity to actually make a New Year's resolution to all of you. And that resolution is I'm going to preach a sermon this year. <laughs> Getting it out of the way right now. See, what's interesting is I, will, I cannot be as punny as what Jared is, but I at least can get some groan-worthy grown worthy laughter, which is good. Jared did give me the option when uh, preaching a couple months ago. He said, you know, you can either continue with our current sermon series, which was the, the book of Luke, or I could pick whatever I wanted to preach on. And, and at the time, I said, you know what, for continuity's sake, let me go ahead and, and continue on with the preaching where we're at. But as we got closer, I realized we are heading on a collision course for Luke 16, which is the parable of the dishonest manager, um, which is interesting. This is one of the most difficult parables that you will probably encounter that Jesus gives. I like what John MacArthur said about it as far as the in his book, The Parable. He said, in Luke 16, our Lord tells a parable that both echoes and illustrates that admonition, that is, of wealth, in a very unusual way. It is the story of a, of a lying, cheating, unfaithful servant who is found out and put on notice that he will be fired. He then cunningly uses his master's wealth to buy friendships that will be useful for cushioning his fall from grace. MacArthur goes on to say, what a strange thing to praise someone. This is one of the most astonishing and enigmatic of all of Jesus' parables. The stories our Lord told often contained profoundly shocking twists and turns, but none more baffling than this. Baffling for John MacArthur, uh, imagine how daunting it is for me this morning and, and as well as most of you. Since it's not too late to back out from Luke 16, let's dive into the parable. I'm a huge fan of Alistair Begg. As a matter of fact, you'll hear a lot of Alistair Begg uh, come out in this sermon today. And one of the reasons why I love Alistair Begg is because he has a saying that is, is very simple, and that is, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. The reason why I like that saying is because I also, when I coached football, which by the way, coming into this morning, this, was, uh, this brought me back to 2007 when I last coached football, I had that same feeling in the gut of my stomach going into today. 
But I also like to follow Lou Holtz's mindset when it came to coaching because he used the KISS method, and that is keep it simple, stupid. Um, and if it worked for me in football and it works for Alistair Begg as far as keeping it simple, I hope to do the same thing this morning. So let's first dive into the parable and look at the context of the actual parable itself. As we've been studying the book of Luke, Jesus is essentially headed to Jerusalem. His eyes are fixed on the cross. So essentially he knows what fate lies at the end of his journey because he is on his way uh, essentially to Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And he knows this and is, and is accepting it willingly. He's amassed a crowd that included his disciples, Pharisees and scribes, and in the words of Luke 15.1, which we studied a couple weeks ago, now the sinners and tax collectors were all drawing near to him. And in 15.2, we read and we learn that we learn that the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Jesus responds to this grumbling in the rest of chapter 15 by responding with three parables, with Rich, which Richard and Jared both preached upon. And those were the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. But chapter 16 is unique because it actually begins with a pivot. Because with the three previous parables, Jesus is essentially teaching to or giving these parables to rebuke the Pharisees and the scribes. But with 16, he pivots because the pivot begins with he also said to the disciples. So in other words, this parable pivots from actually rebuking the Pharisees and the scribes for their grumbling to now we are pivoting to actual instruction to Jesus' disciples. This instruction is to the church. And he began the, the parable by saying, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. Now the main characters in the, this story, this parable, are essentially the manager and the owner. In biblical times, a manager was someone who worked for a wealthy landowner and was tasked with running the day-to-day -day op operations and day-to-day -day affairs of the estate in order to essentially free the, the wealthy landowner from having to do so. Uh, in Genesis 39, verses 5 and 6, we learn of what a good manager looks like, and that is with Joseph, because Joseph provides the example that from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptians' house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. The manager in Luke 16 is no Joseph. Um, as a matter of fact, Joseph provides the exemplary idea of what a manager should have looked like but the manager in, in this parable did not. Because he is not closely supervised, the manager in Luke 16 became careless. He became lazy. In fact, so lazy that charges were brought to him, the owner, that this man, the manager, was wasting the owner's possessions. The owner in this case was so wealthy, he was able to hire someone from afar with little to no supervisory accountability. And the manager who at one point in time built up this trust, began to betray that trust. He began to get lazy. And in verse 2, and he called him, this is the owner, and he said to him, what is that that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager has essentially done a terrible job. 
there is no chance for remediation. There is no chance to uh, get a good evalu or a bad evaluation and then course correct. Essentially, this manager is going to be fired. Uh, the owner tells him to basically close out all of your books, bring them to me, for you no longer will be manager. He's getting the ax. He's being fired. And then in verse 3, we learn that the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig, and I am too ashamed to beg. One of the things that I did, one of the verses that I did not include in, in the Genesis 39, verse 6, was the very end of it, because at the very end of verse 6, it says that Joseph was a handsome man. Joseph at least had his handsomeness to fall back on. Um, this manager does not have his han handsomeness to fall back on. Instead, his goose is essentially cooked. He's too proud to beg, and his hands, like, like mine were when I was, was a kid, they were delicate flowers, and they were too delicate to dig ditches. And this is probably an account because he became lazy. He has gotten good at being lazy and careless and has no desire to essentially start a second career. So this is where he starts to actually concoct his ingenious plan, if you will. Because he says, I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So he's actually starting to concoct a plan where he is going to go out, as we will learn in verses 5 through 8, to essentially build up a new way of doing things, a new way to get people to give him the life on easy street. Rather than go back to school to learn a new skill, send out his resume to other owners, or even humble himself for a time to get back on his feet, he instead concocts a plan to gain favor from the very tenants he had been working closely with while manager. He decides to build his network with the social capital he has. He is a shrewd manager and astute on how to gain favor from others so they will receive him into their houses. And in verses 5, he begins the plan. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commends the dis... Oh, I, I don't want to go there yet. So the manager is using financial capital to build up social capital. I'm going to use that term capital because in today's day and age, we use capital to think of something a little bit different. Um, you know, capital has always been that that's essentially what you needed to build something up. That's what you needed to start a business. That's what you needed to, to start with your finances. You needed that capital to build something else up. Today, we often talk about political capital. We often talk about social capital. We often talk about financial capital, and it's actually using that capital to benefit you. So the, the manager, like I said, is actually using his financial capital to build up social capital with his tenants. He gains favor by reducing the debts the tenants owe to the owner, and he can do so because the owner has no clue how much is actually owed. So summoning his med, I think I already read that, sorry. But a real quick side note, as the manager, because we can go through a lot of different weeds and get into a lot of, a lot of different weeds, it's very easy to start to look at verse 8 
or verse 7 and start to think, well, this doesn't sound very honest, so are the tenants also being honest as well, or are they actually devising in the same dishonest plan? A real quick side question as to whether or not the, the tenants are actually culpable in the same dishonest scheme, most likely they were not. It was custom for the manager to work with tenants in difficult seasons to release some of the burden on the tenants. It was possible for the tenants to believe that the manager was acting on behalf of the owners. The tenants would have had no clue the manager was being fired. In the case of this instance though, the bills were lowered not because of crop failure or other hard times, rather because the deal the manager was making with the tenants and it would have been assumed by the tenants that the manager had full authority to lower the debts. The manager wasn't lessening the burden of sharecroppers, rather he was forgiving some of the debts of the tenants on what would have been seen as acting in good faith of his master. And this debt forgiveness, when we look at the, the actual sheer immensity of the, the debt forgiveness, it would have been equivalent to many years of labor, upwards of eight years worth of a living wage. What generous favors the manager was extending to his tenants with this debt forgiveness, favors the manager knew he would need to call on much sooner rather than later. So once again, this manager is actually building up that social capital with shrewd financial capital. But then we take a bewildering plot twist with verse 8. I'm going to take a drink real quick. It's been a long time since I've talked this long, I think. And now for the plot twist. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For this, I want to stop there. See, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself again. In the case of the parable, the owner was taking the major financial hit. In today's day and age, that owner had every right to take the manager to court. He had every right to throw the manager in jail. He had every right to seek damages. He also had every right at the time to actually go to the tenants and say he was dishonest. Everything that he wrote down is in fact false. You still owe 100 measures of wheat. You still owe. And he could have very easily done that. But instead, where this takes such a bewildering plot twist is, instead of going after the manager, he praises him. He praises him for his shrewdness. He praises him essentially for his dishonesty. This is hard because, as MacArthur once again states in the same book, the steward's plan, though un underhanded, was wickedly ingenious. The steward took careful advantage of a brief fleeting opportunity. He manipulated what resources were temporarily, temporarily in his power to achieve ends that were to his long-term advantage. He used the master's resources to do the debtor's immense good. He won their friendship with lavish generosity. And it was not just one debtor whose friendship he bought, but he bought all of them. And once again, instead of actually going after the manager and saying, you need to go to jail, and going back to the tenants, the owner instead praised him. And then Jesus, once again, with a difficult conversation, concludes the parable in verse 8 
with this, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. It's easy to, to look on the surface as if Jesus is perhaps also commending this type of behavior. Make no mistake, though, Jesus is not sanctioning dishonesty and unfair dealing between man and man. The purpose of this parable is not to commend dishonesty. According to J.C. Ryle, the parable teaches the wisdom of providing against coming evil. The conduct of, a, of the unjust steward, when he received notice to quit, was undeniably clever. Dishonest as he was in striking off from the bills of debtors anything that was due his master, he certainly by doing so made friends. Wicked as he was, he had no eye to the future. Disgraceful as he was, he provided for himself. He did not sit still in idleness and see himself reduced to poverty without a struggle. When he lost one home, he secured another. I want to go back to the very beginning of this parable. Do you recall who Jesus was actually teaching this parable to? The parable was directed to the disciples. His message was to the church, and it was clear. The people that follow after this world and live in darkness and have not come to follow Jesus are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than the people that are in the light and dealing with their own. Those in the dark are better at making friends by chasing and encouraging, chasing and encouraging darkness than we are with the best news in the world. And this is the best news that the world has ever heard. Rather than sharing the light, we try to be like the world. We try to outworld the world. So what happens when the church tries to outworld the world? Second Peter, in Second Peter, Peter warns, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And even though they will bring upon themselves swift destruction, Peter goes on to say, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. We can also go to Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 5. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But the prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which 
the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. As a Christian who came to faith late, basically in my adulthood, I, as many of you know, I, I was in my late 20s at the time, I've always found it perplexing for the church that has been established on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to attempt to tra attract the lost to the faith by putting a Christian spin on things like secular music, a Christian spin on secular movies, a Christian spin on a secular lifestyle. Growing up, I didn't really see any difference between what the American church was putting out in terms of evangelism versus what the culture was selling while growing up. I followed after the world because the world was better at being worldly. I wa it wasn't until I was in my late 20s that I had a tug in my heart, a pull, if you will, to pick up the Bible and begin to read it. I don't have any explanation for why I did. I just did. I can, but the one thing is I, I cannot recount or tell you why I picked up the Bible, but I can recount countless steps along the way where I had faithful believers coming into my life, praying for me, inviting me to church, praying for me, talking to me about God, and even though I would say, I don't have time for that, no one has time for that, they still continued to evangelize. They still continued to talk to me. They still continued to invite me to church. So then, after reading God's word in, I guess it would have been 2005, 2006, I decided I was going to start visiting churches. Once again, never really ever stepped foot in churches when I was a kid. I will tell you the story that the first time I ever heard the actual Easter message, I was 29 years old. I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't grow up with church stories. I didn't grow up with Bible stories. Um, sadly, I am not in the minority as far as this culture goes anymore. So the first two churches I went to, they were okay. The first message, I can tell you what the what the uh, message actually was. It was called Three Strikes and You're Still Saved. Really good, feel good message. It, it, uh, it resonated a little bit because I was a coach. So it, I'm like, you know what? That's a baseball analogy. I love baseball. That's not bad. The next week I, I went to the other, another church that I was invited to and, and I heard a, a message that basically told me that um, my good works will lead me to my salvation. Both good messages. They weren't bad. I enjoyed them. But then the third and final church that I visited was a lot different. The pastor preached about how I, as a sinner, will never be able to stand before a just God on my own merits. That my sins deserve the full wrath and punishment of a just and holy God. But God's own son, Jesus Christ, who came to this world fully human and yet fully God, willingly went to the cross despite never violating God's law, and despite never actually breaking a Roman law, because the Roman authorities themselves found no guilt, in, no guilt in him, willingly served as my atoning sacrifice for the sins that I was committing daily, for the sins that I still continue to commit to this day. And though his sacrifice on the cross, the sacrifice that was the perfect lamb of God, sorry, and through this sacrifice on the cross, all of my guilt and my sin 
was washed away by him, by Jesus Christ, whose name we proclaim today. And as a result of that, I was still being sanctified. I still had a ways to go, but I started to truly heed 1 Peter verse, or chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. And this started to sink into my life. And that is, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Why would we ever take this good news and water it down and try to outworld the world? And yet this is happening all across the West today. This is happening in the American church. This is happening in churches on every corner and right here in Charleston. I love, once again, I'm going to quote Alistair Begg, and, and he had this in a devotional a couple weeks ago. Take a moment and reflect upon the immensity and the intimacy of God's grace and love for you. Jesus bore all of your failures on the cross that you might die to sin and live for him. And he continues to pursue relationships with you despite all of your imperfections. He knows you utterly. He knows every wart, every imperfection of you. And yet he loves you perfectly. When it comes to worldly things, the world tends to be much wiser about being the world than the Christian does. The world does worldliness far better than the church. So why would the church ever try to attract the lost by using worldly methods? How cold we professing Christians can be about things of eternity by attempting to attract the lost and broken of our communities by giving them a message that only tells 50% or 20% of the good news. Because that's what the unjust manager was only able to do. He gave a 20% forgiveness of debt. He gave a 50% forgiveness of debt. By leaving out sin, or leaving out the atonement, or leaving out the cross of Jesus Christ, we are essentially giving a 20% message or a 50% message. We are watering down the best news that the, this world has ever heard. By preaching a message that all of you have to, all you have to do is do your best, leaving the lost and broken still feeling empty because their best never seems to be good enough. So what are we to do? Let's go back to Jesus. Still going to be difficult, though, with what Jesus says, because in verse 9, Jesus instructs his disciples to use what wealth they have not for selfish purposes, but to make friends. In verse 9, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the, into the eternal dwellings. So how do we take verse 9 when Jesus says, and I tell you, make friends of unrighteous wealth? so that when it fails, they may receive you in, into eternal dwellings. If we look at the passage through the lens of popular false teachings, which Peter 
warned about earlier, we could fall into the trap that Jesus is encouraging the accumulation of unrighteous wealth and using that wealth as a means to show his blessings upon our lives. Jesus is not encouraging his disciples to fix their hearts on material prosperity or earthly possessions. He clearly dispels that belief in the same verse at the very beginning, saying, or at the, very, at the end, saying that the unrighteous wealth will fail. And again in verse 13, which we'll get to later when he concludes with, you cannot serve God in money. Yet today false teachers permeate the Western culture and the Western church to justify their own obsession with wealth and have prospered greatly by breaking the backs and bank accounts of many hardworking folks that have bought into the false hope that God wants us to be wealthy, he wants us to be healthy, he wants us to be wise, and God's favor, favor is shown in our wealth. And oh, by the way, though, the one part of the message that they also include a lot of times, and they just sneak it in there as a false teacher, they sneak in that if you aren't wealthy, that's a you problem. Yet Jesus gives a stern warning on this thinking in Matthew 10, 24, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. And to emphasize again, Jesus in this very verse tells his disciples and you, the church, that this wealth will fail. So what is Jesus' principal application with verse 9? I like the explanation, and I'm going to say this man's name with confidence because I have no idea how to pronounce it. The Thabiti Anabawile. Thank you. Appreciate that. He gives in his commentary on, on, in Luke, and, it's, and this is his, his, his words. Verse 9 gives us the punchline. Here's what the Christian disciple or steward of God's possession needs to do. We need to use worldly wealth, the money and possessions of the world, to make friends. The wealth is going to fail. Our money will fail us. It is not an adequate God to worship. So we need friends who outlive our wealth. In fact, we need friends who outlive our world. What friends can do that? Only God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Any man who has God for a friend has a home without end. The Christian who stewards God's wealth to do God's work, God's way, will have God as a friend and heaven as a home. Money in this world is for getting a home in the next world. And I need to pause to take a drink again. So the question is, when it comes to money, and, and this is a very difficult, some very difficult questions that, that I ask myself as well. Do you look at your check stubs as a gift from God and therefore your money as his money? And since it is ultimately his, are we using our wealth and gain to further his kingdom? Jesus provides a wonderful principle here for his disciples and for you, his church. Once our hearts have changed, our value system has changed. With an eternal focus rather than a worldly temporal focus, we begin to see that our talent and our financial talent and our social talent and our time are all gifts from God and are to be used for his glory and his glory alone. If we are in Christ, what we call ours in terms of money belongs to God. What we call ours in terms of my house is his house. My family is his family. My five children are his children. 
He's just entrusted me to be their dad. My church is his church, and my time is his time. Until we shift our focus to his focus, then we will continue to try to outworld the world. When Corrine asked me to give a title for today's sermon, I landed on Kingdom Capital. In terms of the sermon text today, the primary emphasis is on financial capital and how to use money to further the kingdom. In terms of using our finances for Kingdom Capital, I wonder, how are we investing or spending our resources in terms of a kingdom focus to build Kingdom Capital? Do you look at your bank account as God's and ask, how, ask him how you should be spending and investing, what he has provided? How about our church finances? Do we truly look at our finances as God's, or are we more focused on the rainy day nest egg instead of placing our emphasis on the here and now? Are we using our financial gifts to evangelize the world around us, or do we want to remain comfortable with worldly wealth? God wants us to find all of our comfort and joy in him. We live for his glory. The message of the gospel is that he who is in total perfection wants to make friends with sinners like you. Jesus' ministry doesn't evangelize the wealthy, the intelligentsia, or the religious pious leaders. Instead, back to Luke 15, verse 2, these very people grumbled, that is, the scribes and Pharisees. They grumbled because Jesus was dining with sinners. Which brings me to another type of capital, social capital. In the story of the dishonest manager, we see him using his social capital to make friends. I wonder, how are we using our social capital to glorify God? We are assured that God will never leave us nor forsake us and that we are called to look to Christ and be saved. We are also assured that Jesus will not lose any who he has received. We have full assurance in Christ, but our call doesn't end there. In chapter 1 of the book of Acts, Luke writes in verse 8, But you will receive when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In order to take this good news to the end of the earth, we must do it. We, his church, each and every one of you that are sitting in these chairs this morning, this is your call. And we must do it in this broken, fallen world. How can we be the salt and light in darkened places where we live if we have no relationship with the people that live in those darkened places? Christ himself made friends with sinners. He sought sinners. Sinners are who make up his church. I was that very sinner 16 years ago and heard that message that I was a sinner. And I am blessed to be part of his church today. Luke 15, 1 through 2 is very hard. I'm going to read it again. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eat, eats with them. I don't know about all of you, but I far too often can relate to the attitudes of the Pharisees and the scribes. I would rather avoid the world and all the sinners that are out there and shield myself and my family and my kids 
from the brokenness. But there's a problem with wanting to avoid the world. The removal from the world denies us the ability to seek non-Christian friends. It denies us the ability to share the gospel with non-Christians. And after all, it is non-Christians that we're supposed to be sharing the gospel with. And what's incredible, though, is that Jesus gave his, stir- his church the instruction from the parable of the dishonest manager. And not only that, he also prayed for us. One of my favorite uh, chapters in, in the Bible is John 17, which is Jesus' high priestly prayer. And I go to that in verses 15 through 19, where Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, that is us, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just, I, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is true. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus knew that we would face opposition and discouragement, not only from the world, but also from our own prideful hearts that seek comfort and seek recognition from this very world that we are in. But Jesus got so close to sinners, to prostitutes, to tax collectors, to leopards, to demon-possessed people, that he touched them and not just touched their heart with a feel-good message, With his very hands, he was close enough to touch them. He did not cower in the fear that that he might catch something, or worse yet, be associated with them. Rather, he welcomed them. He loved them. He called them to repent of their sins and go out and sin no more. He called them to trust him. We are called to look to Christ and be saved. He sat beside sinners with this very hope-filled message and promise that he would not lose any who he has received. How are you using your social capital that you have in this world to build up kingdom capital? How about your time? How do you spend your time? Do you come to church for one and a half hours a week on a Sunday and say to yourself, well done, good and faithful servant, I have checked that box for the week? Is your time focused on kingdom capital? Are you actively reading God's word? Are you devoting time to prayer? Are you actively discipling your children? If your children are raised, are you actively seeking young Christians to evangel or to to disciple? Are you actively seeking non-Christians to evangelize too? Do you enjoy spending time with your church family beyond 10 o'clock on Sunday morning? Do you take time to reach the lost and broken in your community? When you spend time with non-Christian friends, do they see that you are different? Or are you spending time being worldly? This parable is hard teaching. It's even more difficult uh, to be before you preaching this and having this as the first Bible message that I get to preach. Might be the last, too. Who knows? We'll see. But if we heed the call from Jesus, it will require us to focus on building this kingdom capital. We will, we will have to plan how we are going into the world that is openly hostile to our Savior and to his church. We is you. 
each and every one of you sitting in these seats today. This mission is not simply to invite the world into our brand new beautiful building and let them come to us. In fact, if we built this building in hopes that if we build it, they will come, we deserve a healthy rebuke from our Savior. His call is not to sit and wait for them to come to us. Rather, he requires us to go into the world where the people are, where the lost are, where the brokenness is on every corner and every home. Are we prepared for this challenge? To quote Alistair Begg again, it's either evangelize or fossilize. Jesus, Jesus showed us how to do it. And the good news is, we are not doing it alone. I close with the final verses of the parable. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? There we go. And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. As for this house, let us choose to serve the Lord. This call is to each and every one of us that is sitting here today. Let's pray. Father, once again, let us uh, just dwell and meditate and rest upon uh, this, this teaching from Jesus and help us rest and meditate knowing that this teaching was to us. It is to us to, to take this good news that, that is about you out to the world around us. Uh, Father, we know that this is a broken world and we know that this, this world is not recently broken. In fact, it's broken from the very first sin of Adam and Eve. It has been broken for a long time. But the good news is your faithfulness is eternal. May we rest in your faithfulness and take this good news out to the world today. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.